Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Larry Jorgensen first became fascinated with Michigan's Upper Peninsula and its unique history while writing and reporting for television news in Green Bay. However, his journey into that world of news had begun much earlier in northern Wisconsin, where he worked while in high school for the weekly newspaper in Eagle River. Later, he was employed by a newspaper publisher in Milwaukee and then on to radio and television news in Texas and Louisiana, along with wire service and freelance assignments. During all those years, he looked forward to return visits to the Keweenaw Peninsula. It was during one of those visits Larry discovered the tale of the wreck of the city of Bangor. It was learning of that little-known event that resulted in his decision to create this written account that he hoped to share the story of one of Lake Superior's most unusual shipwrecks. It's nice to see everybody. Now, remember, next month we're off. We're taking the month of December off. And then I wanted to show you the cover of our book for January, but somebody's reading it. Somebody checked it out. It's called <laughs> The Biting Cold. Um, something Hellman. Is it Matthew Hellman, Victor? Yeah. Let me see if I can get a screen share going. Oh, that'd be perfect. Time. Yeah. It looks, it's a, it's a, it looks like it'd be the perfect book to read for December slash early January. So I'm hoping that that's going to be a good one. And then we are on, we're waiting just to hear when the new UP notable books list year, we're up to year five or year four, year five, I think, right? Five, the time is flying by. Time is flying by. So that will be released. I think, did you tell me like January 1st or so? That's be the, uh, the first, uh, uh, the day after New Year's, I think, probably. So that's really exciting. So I know a lot of you are authors and hopefully you've had, you know, your book might get selected again or or maybe for the first time. So that's going to be really great. We're always anxious for that day. Um, and um, Victor is now going to screen share with us. And then I'll, there's the cover. That's oh. what I, I thought that might be a nice picture for all of you of what's to come here in the week, in the few weeks. And it um, looks like a lighthouse. And it looks like a lighthouse. So I'm hoping that all of you can grab a copy of this book and have it read by the second Thursday in January. Um, you have the month of December off, so we're not going to meet for two months. Uh, Victor, would you like to talk about any more uh, Yupa news? Sure. Uh, just to mention that book, uh, next month, The Biting Call by Matthew Hellman, takes place all in Copper Harbor, so you Keweenaw people, you've got no excuse to avoid this one. That is the Copper Harbor Lighthouse on the cover. Nice. <laughs> okay. So during this month of November, the most exciting thing we have going on is we are still taking submissions for the UP Reader, uh, Volume 8. You have six more days, and on midnight, the clock runs out. We're looking for... Uh, all the writers in UP that, regardless of what you write about, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, we'll take short stories, poems, uh, personal stories, stories from your childhood. My personal favorite, stories of things that should have gotten you killed as a kid but didn't. Mm -hmm. All that stuff goes into UP Reader. And to do submit your work, all you have to do is come and join us at www.uppaa.org. Uh, one will uh, membership price gets you 
submissions to the UP Reader. It gets you the spring conference for absolutely nothing. It gives you benefits all year long. It's the best deal in the whole UP, if you don't mind me saying. All right, uh, back to you, Evelyn. Okay, thank you. And that reminds me, I think the next thing that'll be coming up pretty shortly is that Dandelion short story contest. Am I correct? Yes, uh, right. That that. Thank you for reminding me that submissions will close on the last day of February. And if you can submit early, anyone who is a, a child in the UP school system, public, private, homeschool, grades uh, 5 through 12, you submit the work through your your teacher sponsors it, and there's no cost, and you could win top prize of, of uh, $250. So, so I'm, I was thinking of that, and I'm hoping, if you don't mind, if you could send me tomorrow, maybe email me those rules, and I'll walk up to the local school, and I'll share it with our homeschool group here in town, um, and hopefully they'll, they'll submit. So, um, all right, Larry, can you talk to us about your wonderful short little book, Shipwrecked and Rescued Cars and Crew, The City of Bangor? Well, I'd love to. And, you know, this is really an appropriate day, month to be talking about shipwreck on Lake Superior, because what is tomorrow? Ooh. It's the 10th. It's, it's a, the day. In November, we lost the Edmund Fitzgerald. That was 1975, I believe. So, I mean, you know, the the, the whole story, and, I, and I've been talking to others about this. Um, of course, every year we have the remembrance of the Edmund Fitzgerald. We are so fortunate that with my book, we also had a November Lake Superior shipwreck but we were fortunate to have a happy ending. And um, that is just, when when you read about all of the wrecks that have happened in November in Lake Superior, we are very fortunate to be able to talk about one that had a happy, a difficult, a difficult ending, but a happy ending. So um, I, I can, uh, start uh, giving you some of the details if that's the normal progression of this uh, this gathering and um, every, every, actor, every actor every author does it a little bit differently but I would say typically the author does talk a little bit about the book and and then sometimes if people have a question throughout they can ask it or, or even at the end yeah, I love questions because there are things that that come up in the book and people, they they doubt that this could happen and, and they want did it really and so forth so questions please Let, let's take it a step at a time i mean we start out in the book of course we give some background to to uh, great lake shipping and the history of it but we really get into the story when we start talking about the city of bangor uh ship it was uh, a, a unique ship because it originally had been built to be a cargo hauler. And uh, it was converted to become an automobile hauler. And it, when it left Detroit in November of 1926, it had 240 brand new Chryslers, brand new as in 1927 models. And uh, it was headed for Duluth, a lot of anxious 
Chrysler dealers were waiting in Duluth uh, for the shiny new Chryslers to show up. Um, unfortunately, they got into a tremendous storm in Lake Superior. Um, the captain described it as one of the most fierce storms he'd ever experienced. And he'd had a lot of um, experience on the Great Lakes. And uh, this one was just the worst he'd ever experienced. Lost complete control, lost the rudder. Um, and it, it ended up tossing the ship onto a reef off of Copper Harbor. And basically the ship was ultimately declared a total loss. But what we've got is, is we're dealing with two rescues. The first rescue is the rescue of the crew. Obviously there's 29 crewmen on the boat and they hit the reef and you know they're not on shore, they're on this reef and it's pretty difficult. The storm is continuing. Uh, the only way they can get heat is they gather into the, the, uh, the cook's area in the ship and that's working for a while until another wave, a strong wave comes and knocks over the the uh, the, the uh, stove uh, exhaust, the stove pipe, and all of a sudden there's no heat, and these guys are trying to survive. Well, finally the storm subsides enough that they can chop loose a lifeboat, and they they take the lifeboat and a group of them get to shore. They have, of course, a big rope on the lifeboat. It's pulled back to the, the, the ship, which is, this is called the City of Bangor, by the way. And they, they continue to uh, rescue crew members by back and forth with the lifeboat and get everybody to shore. Now, it, okay, so we've got everybody to shore, but you know what? We've got a crew that some of them thought this was almost going to be like a nice little cruise to Duluth. And there are several members of the crew who are poorly dressed. I mean, we're talking about loafers for shoes, and we're looking at November snowfall in the Keweenaw, which is not conducive to loafers or to casual dress. So anyhow, they, they finally get to shore. To add to the problem, the captain had thought when they got into the storm, he thought he saw Brockway Mountain and he figured, uh -huh, that's, I'm sure everybody knows where Brockway is up at Copper Harbor. And so he decided that they must have wrecked to the west of Copper Harbor. So the crew gets onto, onto terra firma and they decide, okay, our hope for survival is to get to Copper Harbor. So they start walking east. Well, the fact of the matter is the ship had crashed east. The, the reef was east of Copper Harbor. So what's happening, they're walking further away from their destination. And it took several hours before the crew realized this and turned around and were then headed west, hopefully to get to Copper Harbor. The first night they made it all the way back to where the ship had, had uh, wrecked on the reef 
and they they made a fire and spent that first night uh, in that area. The next day, they continued west, and it was not easy. They were not dressed for the snow, and the snow is, you know, six to ten feet deep in drifts, and it was really tough going. There were there were times as the day went on that many of them thought we're not going to make it. Um, so they're they're trudging through the snow, and only because of another shipwreck. And this one happened on the uh, the southeast side of the Keweenaw, um, and down around Bedigree. And the that crew, basically, the ship was just ran aground. There was no major damage to it except ran aground, two of the crewmen were able to get off the ship and were finally able to go about six miles by foot to reach telecommunications and call the lifeguard station at Eagle Harbor. So the crew at the uh, Eagle Harbor uh, Coast Guard station put, puts a lifeboat in, in the water and proceeds to head out to rescue the, the crew from the second boat. Um, they go right by the banger, not knowing they've gone by the banger because the snow and, and the storm is still so bad that they couldn't even see it. They are able to rescue the 23 uh, crewmen from the Mackin, which was the, the boat that had run, a, run aground. And, uh, they start heading back to Copper Harbor. They're gonna take the 23 rescued uh, crewmen to Copper Harbor. Well, the storm abates a bit. The captain sees, the Coast Guard captain sees the, uh, he sees the, uh, the, the abandoned ship on the reef and he, he kind of pulls in to see if there's any survivors there. Well, there weren't, obviously the crew had taken off by foot towards Copper Harbor. So they continue on for several hours and all of a sudden they spot the crew. Now really, the crew from the banger really struggling. Uh, they're in a bay uh, um, and uh, they're just struggling to survive in the snow. So the, the Coast Guard captain pulls into the bay and he hails to the, the surviving Proof the banger he says, make a fire. I'll know where you are. And after I get this crew to Copper Harbor, I'll come back and get you. So he takes the the crew that he's got to Copper Harbor. And I mean, this is 1927. Copper Harbor is what, probably three dozen people or less living there full time. So anyhow, the, the, the crew is left at Copper Harbor. Um, the captain of the uh, Coast Guard rescue ship decides when he goes back to take with him a to tow a smaller boat that could be used to again ferry the crew from the banger from shore to the to the rescue uh, Coast Guard boat because it, it the storm is still pretty rough and there's no way he can get in there with with the big boat. So they do that. They they continue to get the the crew from the banger onto the Coast Guard rescue boat, 
and they get them back to Copper Harbor. So now we've got like 50-some rescued crewmen in Copper Harbor. Well, you know, there's no holiday in at the Copper at Copper Harbor at this time, you know. Uh, accommodations are pretty thin. There was one place uh, where a few of them, it's called the Swedes. If you're ever in Copper Harbor, the Swedes, the, the main building is still there. Um, so they were able to take a few in there. The Coast Guard captain decided he would take the crew from the second ship to Eagle Harbor. And give them accommodations there. Um, he also suggested he came back and suggested that the banger crew could also go there. And the captain uh, said, no, he said, they are in such bad shape that they can never, they cannot take another, another cruise anywhere. So the problem is find them accommodations someplace where they can get in, get warm, get food. It so happens there's a family in Copper Harbor that decides we'll take them in. And they take that they agree to take the family in. And little by little, I mean to take the crew in, the crew is brought to this home. And by the time they get there, and they are falling down in the snow, they can hardly move. By the time they get to the home, um, it's it's all they can do to stand up. They get them in the home, and they literally collapse around a a uh, fire. Um, one, of the, one of these big storms. I think we have a question, or what? I'm game to talk. So, who's there? Nobody's there. Okay. So they get the crew in. They're in really bad shape. Um, they begin to thaw out. And little by little, they are fed and, and taken care of as best as can be in that situation. Well, the, the Coast Guard um, rescue captain is able to make contact with the hospital in Lorium. And he says, we have some very badly injured uh, in need of help here uh, in Copper Harbor. We need help. So they were able to get a doctor uh, who knew a doctor from Lorium who knew a auto dealer, in fact, a Chrysler dealer there who had been experimenting with a with a car and putting, you know, the tracks on the back wheels and the skis in the front to make it go in the snow. So he said, let's try this. And he was able with that, that vehicle to get the doctor to Copper Harbor to provide immediate medical assistance to the, to the, um, ones that needed it and to the ones that were really seriously injured to get them, transport them back to Lorium and get them into a hospital. So little by little, we get the crew from the banger into the hospital in Lorium. Now, the uh, some of them 
were able to, to go on this this vehicle, this snow vehicle. Most of them, however, went uh, by sleigh through the snow and they ultimately all got to the hospital at Lorium. Now, it, it, it's pretty amazing because if, if you've been up there, and I'm sure you have, the distance, you know, from Copper Harbor to Lorium at that time, you know, with with unplowed roads, unplowed road, there's one road, you know, it is difficult to say the least. But they do finally get all of the um, all of the uh, the crewmen to um, to Copper Harbor. What I'd like to get, and I, maybe we can show it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a book and show you a a uh, a message that was written by the crew. Um, maybe you've got it there. Have you got the Christmas message? Let me yes. see if I can get it too. Yeah. Or if you've got the PDF. To put on my cheaters here, okay? So bear with me. This this was, is this any better? It was a Christmas message that was sent to the William Berg family. They're, they're the ones that took in the, uh, the crewmen and, and fed them, flawed them out and so forth. And how this 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 Christmas card is in the book, how it happened, I was able to, excuse me, track down the granddaughter of the Bergs. She lives in Indiana, but they have a summer home on Lake Medora. And I was able to find her through research, told her what I was up to, and asked her if she would give me some additional information. Well, not only did she do that, she came up to Lake Medora to their cottage twice. We met, and the second time she came, she brought a box of memorabilia from her, that she had found from her grandmother. And in that box, besides some wonderful pictures, which are also in the book of the home and so forth, uh, was his Christmas card. And as it turned out, the second mate who had gone back after, after what happened, as they were treated in the hospital, uh, one by one, they would be released and they would be able to return to their hometowns. Well, the second mate, uh, his hometown was in Ohio. And when he got back, he wrote this Christmas card to the Bergs. And Thank them for saving it, all of the crew, their, their tremendous selfless uh, providing of food. You know, again, the, the Bergs had prepared for the winter by simply, they'd, Mr. Berg had slaughtered a couple hogs, and they say that he had a well-producing cow, and there were a few chickens. But, I mean, that's what they had, and, you know, there's no vehicle transportation of provisions in the winter to Copper Harbor. And yet they proceeded to empty out their food supply to, to, to feed the crew that had gone into their home. Um, it's interesting, uh, the Bergs continued 
and I, we mentioned it in the book as well, to serve the Keweenaw, uh, a few years later, Mr. Berg ran for sheriff in Keweenaw County and was overwhelmingly elected. And so he and Mrs. Berg moved to um, Eagle River uh, because that's where you have to go to be in the county operations. Um, it was interesting because he was sheriff and Ida, Mrs. Berg, decided that she would become the assistant sheriff, you know? And her her big thing was to take care of the, the, the jail, the prison. Um, and again, the story was shared to me by her granddaughter who said, when someone would be brought up before a judge for some crime or misdemeanor or whatever, and he was then, when found guilty, provided with the opportunity to um, pay a fine or go to jail. Well, many times, especially in the winter, the choice was pretty easy. He would select going to jail because everybody knew that Ida Berg was one heck of a chef. Okay, she could really cook, and in the winter time, that was a good place to be. Was in Ida's in Ida's jail, so they again they provided continued to be a service to the Keweenaw. There's a sad but happy ending to that story. Mr. Berg runs for sheriff the second time, and is reelected for a second term, which was to begin in January. Well, in December, typical of the person he was, he was out helping someone whose car had gotten stuck in the snow and he caught pneumonia. He died two days into his first, into his second term. And what happened, his wife, Ida, was named sheriff. Well, not only did she serve his second term, but she ran for and was successfully elected to two more terms. And she is listed in one of Michigan's most famous women's uh, directories, okay? So, it, you know, it, it's typical of what was going on at that time in the Keweenaw as far as people. I mean, and and we, we mentioned it at the very end of the book, we, we make a tribute to the people of, of the peninsula because, you know, unlike, you know, the old saying, it takes a village. Well, in this case, it took a peninsula. Over a hundred people acting in various capacities to save the crew. And then we get into saving the cars. That's the story yet to come. So, but anyhow, finishing up with our crew that is in the hospital, one by one, they're um, healthy, able to return home. Some of them who were badly hurt uh, stayed for a couple months. Now, I was told by somebody who knew one of the nurses in the hospital, so this is semi-reliable rumor, that there were at least a couple of the crewmen who decided because of the nurses they met that they would stay in the Keweenaw. So they became residents and never went back because they found a happy situation 
with the nurses that they had met at the hospital. Um, supposedly a reliable source told me that I could never track down the name of a person who, who uh, stayed after he was released from the hospital, but it makes sense. So, okay, so anyhow, we finally got the crew taken care of. What about the cars that are sitting on the abandoned ship on the reef off of Copper Harbor? Well, now it's Walter Chrysler, who has come up my way and looked at the, the ship and has been told by the insurance inspector that it's a total loss. And Walter says, I want my cars back. Okay, so here's 200 and some Chryslers sitting on a useless ship on a reef off of Copper Harbor. Walter Chrysler hires a salvage operation out of Duluth. Says, if you can get those cars back to me, I'll pay you, I think it was like $140 a car. So they come up with a plan. First of all, they put a a guard station out on land to be able to watch hmm. ship on the reef. So that goes on for a couple of months until the water freezes okay. around the reef. So now we've got a hard surface, sort of, from the reef to shore. So they build a ramp off of the ship. And there's a great picture, by the way, in the book of this ramp and the cars coming off of the ship. Um, many of the pictures, I need to give credit on this. Many of the pictures that are in the book, that one in particular and others like it, were taken by the captain of the Coast Guard rescue ship. He was also an amateur photographer and just loved to take pictures. So a lot of the pictures go to his credit. So anyhow, little by little, they get the cars off of the ship onto the reef. Now, it's not easy because in the in the book, you'll see pictures, especially of the cars that are on top of the ship, on the topper deck, are completely covered in snow and ice. And there are pictures of men shoveling them out, chopping them out, getting them out however they can. Fortunately, the, the cars on the lower level uh, sustained a little water damage because when the boat crashed, there was a gash put into it and there was some water that got into the lower level. But ultimately, they get all the cars off of the ship onto the reef and then they drive, it, drive each car to shore. Now, somebody says, well, you know, it's only seven miles to Copper Harbor. Let's make a road through the woods, the woods and the snow, January snow, to Copper Harbor, and we'll get all the cars to Copper Harbor. Well, that idea lasted for about a mile. And no, that's not going to work. What do we do? Well, some other genius says, wait a minute. The ice is frozen also along the shore. You know? Why don't we just drive the cars along the shore of Lake Superior to get them to Copper Harbor? Okay, sounds easy. And there is a, a wonderful picture in the book of some of the cars 
along the shore and in the background, the Copper Harbor Lighthouse. So just that you can obviously see where these guys are. Um, that's the one, absolutely. So little by little, they're getting the cars from the land near the reef along the shore at the Copper Harbor. Sounds like an easy, sort of an easy project, except the cars, some of the cars didn't have batteries. Some of them had batteries that were dead. So when they get a car that's working to Copper Harbor, they take the battery out and they take it back to the ship and put it into another car. So this was not just a, an easy caravan of vehicles from the, the reef to Copper Harbor. But finally, they do get all 200 and some. It wasn't quite 240 anymore. We lost 13 cars went overboard uh, when the got into the into the, the the storm. So there are 13 Chryslers, if you're looking for one, on the bottom of Lake Superior somewhere. Okay, but anyhow, the rest of them finally make it to Copper Harbor. My one of my favorite pictures, and it's on the back cover of the book, shows. Let's see if we can get it. all of the cars lined up in a field at Copper Harbor. 200 and some 1927 brand new Chryslers. Now, again, what are we at? Two dozen maybe residents, you're not gonna sell 200 and some Chryslers in Copper Harbor. So here they are, they're all lined up. Well, still waiting to get them to Walter in Detroit. So the next plan is, can we plow open the road from Copper Harbor to Calumet? If we can get the road open, we can get the cars to Calumet and get them on a train back to Detroit. Well, you know, <laughs> for example, the snow around Lake Medora at that point is like eight to 10 feet deep. It's drifted in, it's, it's terrible. So they get, Two county crews, two county highway crews to start working on the road to try to open it up. They work for almost three weeks to finally blast a, a workable trail from Calumet to Copper Harbor. The last six miles, and there's pictures in the book of this, they actually found that there was a new experimental snow it was in Albert Lee, Minnesota. It was one of these turbine type that would blow the snow. And they were able to convince the people in, in Minnesota to loan, to get the to get that snow plow over to them because the basic plow they were using was a typical, you know, push snow away type plow. And when it got to the area around Lake Medora, it just couldn't handle it. So they bring in this turbine type snowplow and it succeeds in breaking through. And one of the youngsters who was in, in Copper Harbor, when it finally came down the hill into Copper Harbor with this roaring sound, he was amazed. He said, what is this noise coming down the hill? And he ran to his father to uh, tell him, yeah, I think that's, that's the picture, I believe of how they were plowing before the turbine. 
And I think on the, maybe on the next page, there's a copy of the, the, the turbine. There it is. And it was, it was being, it, it finally opened the road. So, okay, we've got, we've got a road open and it goes from Copper Harbor to Calumet. Well, we got 200 and some Chryslers at Copper Harbor. Well, in the meantime, while they're working on the road, they are sending fuel by sleigh in tanks to Copper Harbor to fuel to fuel up the Chryslers that were there. So now we've got the Chryslers with fuel. Got to get them to, to Calumet. So the generous salvage company says, we will pay $5 per person for someone to drive a car from Cali from Copper Harbor to Calumet. Well, $5 in that day wasn't bad. And there were a lot of, uh, I've been told, high school boys that thought, yeah, we'll, we'll skip school that day and we will drive a Chrysler from uh, Copper Harbor to Calumet, uh, which, which they did. Uh, it took over the first crew was able to get into Calumet after five hours. And, uh, you know, there's, and, and we've tracked down some of the rumors. Uh, there's probably, they've ex the stories expand with age, but there, there are stories that if you think about it, you're driving a brand new Chrysler and you're going to, you're going to make $5 to get that Chrysler to Calumet. So you're driving down the road to Chrysler, you're thinking about that. You get closer to Calumet, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, Mohawk, that area, there are some side roads that are accessible. And I've been told that not all of those Chryslers made it to Calumet. Some of them sort of stayed in the peninsula, um, but not many. And of course, I've I've had people come up to me after the book came out and said, "Oh my, my grandfather drove one of those, and he knows one of his friends kept one." You know, so that you get these stories, but we did find one, and we write about it in the book. There was one Chrysler that definitely stayed on the Keweenaw, and that car was purchased by the Slazarzik family um the uh, andrew purchased it and his brother patty as they called him uh had both worked on the road crews that that opened the road to get the cars there he was able to buy one he bought it from a, the chrysler dealer who told him yes it was on the banger now, there's been some dispute about that since then, but there's been enough documentation to prove that that happened. Well, he died after two years. His widow got the car. She, in turn, got it to his brother. And Patty was so impressed with the car, so happy to have it. He drove it every chance he got. He drove it in parades. He drove it around town. He just was showing off his car. And there's pictures in the book of Patty with his car. And ultimately, he put over 300,000 miles on that car. 
And there's a picture in the book of Patty running the car through that, you know, you get that safety inspection that the state conducts, and they were doing it even back then. And the, this inspector couldn't believe it. He's looking at the car, he's shaking Patty's hands. He said, I've never had a car this old or with this many miles successfully complete an inspection. So the car stays in the family. Uh, it passed down again to, an, to another son and so forth. It stays in the family, I think it was like over 60, maybe 69 years. And finally, the last son who uh, gets possession of the car uh, is working, is transferred to Menasha, Wisconsin, where he's, he's working probably in Kimberly Clark's paper mill down there. And he really lost interest in the car. It got put away in a, in a storage facility. And one of the people who knew of it was an insurance agent in Calumet. He knew about the car. And he was also a, a kind of a vintage car collector and, and he would restore cars. He was able to work out a deal to buy the car for $5,000. And his idea was, I'm going to restore it, and it will be worth a lot of money, and so forth. Well, I think his idea was bigger than his time and probably his budget, because after five years, he wanted to get rid of it. He put it up for sale. And it so happened, the, the Keweenaw Historical Society and Mark Rowe, who had been following the story of the banger for years, learned that the car was available and they were able to raise enough funds, $5,000 again, to buy the car. And that car today sits in the Eagle Harbor Lighthouse Museum. Mm -hmm. And along with it, there's um, a lot of the photos that uh, the Coast Guard captain had taken because Mark was able to connect with his uh, daughter and granddaughter to get more photos. There was also memorabilia, for example, the captain's desk from the banger is in the museum. He had given it, somehow he was able to get it off of the ship and he had given it to the Berg family. The Berg family in turn has put it on permanent lease, loan, whatever you call it, to the museum. So not only is the captain's desk there, also the captain's jacket, and lo and behold, the log from the ship. And that's another story. We've got so many stories that, that all come into this, this simple rescue of a, of a, a boatload of crewmen and cars. The, the log to the ship had been left under a, a piece of timber um, along the shore. And it was only like a, the following year that a gentleman and, and his, his friend were, were out taking a walk and they stumbled upon this. And they, well, that's interesting. And they, they picked it up and saved it, not really knowing exactly what it was. 
And they saved it for over 20 years until they realized it was in fact the log to the banger, to that last run of the banger. And ultimately through going to the uh, uh, Kiwana uh, tourist uh, organization, they were able to get it turned over to the museum and the log also is in the museum. Now there's a question about that log. There is the last page missing. Now that would have been the page that would have had all the details of all the cars that were on that ship. Why is it missing? When the captain put the log wherever he put it for safekeeping, did he not want that page kept as well? It's a mystery. Um, Mark kind of thinks maybe that was the case because there's no record of, of the exact cars. There's no car, there's no, now they call them VINs. There's no numbers to identify the cars that were on that ship. But the rest of the log is intact and it's in the museum. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it, the museum display itself is absolutely fascinating. If you haven't been, to Eagle Harbor, to the museum. It's right on the hill as you go down to the actual parking lot for the museum, I mean, for the lighthouse. It's right there on top of the hill on the left-hand side. And it's a fabulous story. There's a video that goes with it. And uh, if you've got time, you get up that way, I'd encourage, go see the car, see it for yourself. Uh, we, we released the book uh, in July of, of 22, and we released it there at the museum. And uh, it was great. I, I had a chance to sit in the car and, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience. And, and the book has tremendously uh, been well received, uh, not only throughout the Keweenaw, but it, it, it throughout lower Michigan and and I'll tell you in a minute what happened to the boat, but I've got to tell you this part. I thought I was writing a shipwreck story, which I did. I did not realize that the fascination also was the vintage car collectors. And the book is being purchased by people who like vintage car stories. What have we got? We've got the rescue of 1927 Chrysler's. The book in fact, is on sale in several vintage car museum gift shops. I never, ever thought that that also was a market for my book. <laughs> I appreciate the vintage car people. So consequently, the, the book is being sold throughout the United States, sometimes because of people who like to read about shipwrecks, and sometimes because of vintage car people. In fact, I had a vintage car... Um, person write sort of a, a reference he kind of reviewed the book for me and he was fascinated by the story so that that has become our readership now we still have a boat sitting on a reef off of copper harbor it sat there for 18 years there was one attempt to salvage it Shortly after the, the cars were taken off, there was a, a crew, and again, I think they were from lower Michigan. Uh, the name is in the book. 
they were going to salvage the ship. They had actually put pumps in it to try to pump out some of the water from when it was gashed. And their plan was to salvage the ship, get it off the reef, and use it as sort of a, um, you know, a tow ship for rescue operations, salvage operations in the Great Lakes. Well, they worked on that, and the what happened, the, the tugboats couldn't get close enough to the reef to get this, because the ship is way high on the reef, to be able to successfully get it off the reef. They finally gave up on salvaging it. Um, so it sits there for 18 years. It becomes kind of a popular tourist attraction. People would go out, walk out to the shore, and they'd look out at the at the, the ship and they'd hear the story. There was even one picture, although it's not very good, but it's there. And again, it was the granddaughter of, of Mr. Berg that provided that photo. It's a picture, obviously taken in the wintertime because uh, Mr. Berg was able to walk out to the ship and there's a picture of him sitting kind of in front of where the gash in the ship is. So anyhow, the ship sits there for 18 years. Well, what happens? World War II. And what do we need? Steel. So another salvage company mm -hmm. gets the rights to salvage the boat. And by then, we've got a little more modern technology, if you want to call it that. Not much during World War II, but some. And they were able to go out and through the combination of, of cutting and blasting, they were able to cut the ship down to the waterline. And there is a, a pretty good picture in the book of part of the nose of the ship, a piece of it being dragged by a, a caterpillar to shore. The pieces of the ship were brought in and were piled on the island that, that um, Call it an island, call it a peninsula, whichever you prefer, that makes up Copper Harbor. And they piled up the steel there. It got so high that there were complaints from the residents in Copper Harbor that it was an atrocious site. But it finally all got shipped off into service in providing steel for the war. So, but it doesn't stop there. Again, another chapter. There are two loggers who are working in the woods at the time the ship is being salvaged, who hears about it. And they're thinking, you know, there's more steel out there. And if we get the steel, that's worth a lot more than what we're getting cutting down these trees. So they concoct a vehicle, again, picture in the book, and they take an old truck and they build a big crane winch type thing on the back of this truck, high wheels on it so it can move. And they get it out to the shore so they have access with a long chain to what's left of, of the banger, which is basically underwater. Somehow they are able to get underwater explosives, more cutting torches, and they cut up pretty much what's left of the ship. 
and and it gets using their truck with the big crane they're able to drag these pieces to shore and sell them into the war effort so they again it was sort of a um, an unauthorized midnight salvage effort that uh, that that got the rest of the banger now there are pieces small pieces that occasionally because of wave motions and so forth are uncovered and there are a couple of them in the museum at Eagle Harbor. They're not big pieces, but they're definitely pieces from from the uh, the banger. So it's it just the story goes in so many directions. I just love doing it because I was constantly chasing a new angle, so to speak. You know, from the the, the Bergs and and credit to to um, to the, uh, the granddaughter for her effort and credit to the the uh, families that would tell me um, stories about the, the family that had the, the car and just people that just came and brought pieces to me, which gave me enough to research. But you know what was really interesting? Um, the, the the story, when I, I heard, I was on, and I love going to Copper Harbor. So I was on vacation at Copper Harbor, and I had read a little article in one of these tourist magazines about the ship and about the shipwreck. And I looked on shipwreck maps, you know, you've seen it at museums and restaurants all over the Keweenaw. The, the banger is not listed on there. And I would talk to, to people uh, like in Houghton and that never heard the story. In fact, and this is not a not a dig at, at tech or the archives because they're great people and they and they did ultimately help me. But the my first source I thought for research would go to Michigan Tech to the archives. The first person I talked at the archives hadn't heard about the story of the banger, knew nothing about it. So I explained as best I could what I knew about it at that point. She said, let me look into this. Well, I get a call back a day or two, not a call, an email back a day or two later. She said, there's somebody here on staff that knows all about it. And we've got some newspaper articles and some things you might be interested in. So that helped send me off in a direction. But I thought about that afterwards. I thought, Michigan Tech is what forty miles from Copper Harbor, and a lady in the archives had never heard the story. I thought that's how much of a it wasn't a deliberate secret. It just wasn't much talked about because once I started digging and talking to people, oh yeah, we'll talk about it. But <laughs> it's a fast. It's a. It's absolutely of all the shipwrecks, and there's been six thousand on the Great Lakes. There's never been one that had a rescue like the rescue from the banger. It is very <laughs> unique, and I've had um, museums, maritime museums, lighthouse museums, all over the Great Lakes, who have purchased the book because it's it's they, they read the story and it's like. We've got to have this. It's a fascinating story. And it's true. You know, it's making me wonder because Deb Deborah's on and she wrote a book all about what happened there with the um the Italian Hall disaster. 
and all the children that right. that right and it was funny to me because you know when she gave her talk and then you know when you start talking to people about it there's a lot of people there in Houghton that that don't talk about that story either I'm, I'm beginning to be I wonder if that's a theory about maybe maybe people in the Keweenaw just are very closed-lipped people <laughs> I don't know I'll, I'll give you something that it's not doesn't at all on some bomb match with what you're talking except it matches in time and with people's attitude back in uh, 1963 I was working in radio news in Louisiana and in November and I'd have to look up the date to tell you I should know it uh, November of 1963 John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And obviously my my job as a newsman became totally crazy, okay? Years later, because I had gotten involved in the story and even later on I had a chance to interview people like Jim Garrison when he did his investigation and so forth and did a lot of research. Um, I became fascinated with it. And I won't go into details but there's a lot you'll, you'll see on, on uh, national geographic channel they're running a three-part series it's called um memories of uh, the kennedy years it, it's about the assassination and believe me there is much more to it than that and i won't go in the only reason i'm telling you about this is today i thought about maybe updating the work i had done you talk to people about the Kennedy assassination, especially younger people. They weren't alive then, and it's of no interest. Why yeah. is this of interest to me? You know, so you've got that aging of the story where you lose the people who should be interested in it or who maybe know something about it. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be so prevalent in thinking about digging out my big file about the Kennedy assassination that I decided unless I was 20 years younger and had a crew of 20, I'm going to leave that alone. But, <laughs> but there, there is a lot out there, believe me. You know, I have a question, and I'm sure some of the others do too, and maybe we could just get in a couple of questions before our time is up. You know, when you talked about that, is it the Berger family that were so... I wanted to know, did they have enough food for the winter? I mean, they must have made it, I guess. They did. They, they survived. I I asked, uh, uh, well, I wish I could think of her name right now, but I have the granddaughter. And she said, yes, they were able to, through others and, and the community, were able to have food to survive the winter. But okay. they, sure, they sure were very generous. And it was, it was a daughter that helped Ida in the kitchen making meals for these guys. You know, the one, the one uh, uh, quote I found from a, a crewman who had been interviewed uh, many years ago before he died is he he remembered that first meal. He said it was ham and eggs, and it was the best meal he'd ever had. You know, yeah, I believe. One, I believe. One, of, one of the people who did help me in research. 
and you may have heard of him. In fact, he's doing some things right now on the Edmund Fitzgerald. He's actually has gone down to the Edmund Fitzgerald. He's a diver. His name is Rick Mixton, Mixter. And we, we mentioned Rick in the book. And he, right, he is doing right now a series of um, public appearances. That's Rick. Um, on on obviously the Edmund Fitzgerald, he he has gone down to it. He's he's gone, you know, he dove over the site and he he has good knowledge of what's down there. Um, Rick and I have a similar background because he started out in TV news in Marquette and went from there into doing um, very adventurous things like. Um, deep sea diving and so forth. And when I contacted Rick, he said, we got sharing stories and I was with TV in Green Bay. And he said, oh, I know you guys. I used to watch you guys all the time, you know. So we we became good friends since then. And as I have continued to stay in touch with Rick. He was a tremendous help in putting the book together. Is there anyone out there that has some a question or a comment or anything they want to talk to Larry about? Victor. I, I kind of threw together an ad hoc slideshow while Larry was talking. Maybe maybe it'll be a little more uh, readable for the folks at home. Uh, let's see if I can get this going here. Well, thank you, Victor. Uh, whoops. You see my screen? Yes. All right. All right. The beginning here. This is nice. Larry, can you, can you see me? Yeah, I can see them. They're great picture. You want to give the color commentary? I mean, that'd be great. Uh, uh, obviously, the first shot there shows uh, the ship when it was really covered with snow and ice after being grounded on the on the reef. And if you look at that, you can understand why it took the effort it took to get the, the cars off of the top off of the top deck of that ship because by the time the salvage started, I mean, it had continued to accumulate snow and ice. Good. That's a good picture. Oh, here's another one. Yeah, I'm not sure which one that is. Victor, I guess that may have been an earlier one of it headed yeah. towards the, the I'm, I'm not. The sure. caption reads November 30th, 1926. I don't know where, where's that in the timeline? So, well, then it was en route. It, oh. it, it had not yet hit because it was like the 20, what, 9, 28, 29th that it hit the reef. So that's okay. a, that's a shot en route. And, you know, and the, the, um, the bangers had a lot of records when it was hauling cars. It mm -hmm. took 500 new cars into Chicago at one time, which at that time was a record for automobile transportation on a ship. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we, again, we've got uh, we've got now we've got the ship in trouble with ice. There, there's the, the number four that that I really treasure that shot. That's the cars starting to come off off the top deck and then ultimately being raised from the lower to the top deck using that same ramp. And that was, you know, that was obviously they just 
put the ramp together out there. You know, it was something that the creative uh, salvage people came up with. And of course, the, the bottom photo, <laughs> there they are. They're all lined up at the uh, at, at, uh, Copper Harbor and wow. basically a farm field. <laughs> you can imagine the people in Copper Harbor, well, however many there were at that time, looked at that and said, what is going on? Where did these cards come from? You know, it uh, it's a great shot. And of course, there's again a shot of them on uh, the next one below as they're working their way along the, the shoreline of Lake Superior, uh, a group of them that obviously had working batteries made it in. All right. Uh that's all I got. I thought it would be fun to do well, that. Those are, good. Mm -hmm. those are great, Victor, and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Victor. Any comments or questions for Larry while we have him here on our call? Okay, Mary? I'm unmuted. <laughs> um, I've been, we vacationed a lot in the UP when we lived in Michigan, but now I'm out here in Montana. But I just have loved being able to get back into, you know, the 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 feel of the UP and you know, I mean obviously I think the Fitzgerald every November, but to be able to read about this one is it was just a research. It was great just to be to see it. And I got to come back to the key one now. <laughs> well, for Mary, um, not only do I appreciate the comments, but one up there next I year. have had many people who are ex-Upers <laughs> who now live in Arizona, a lot, of, a lot of snowbirds in Florida who have heard about the book. And it's almost, I don't want to say daily, but at least every week I get a snowbird or a a youper who has moved elsewhere who wants a copy of the book. So yeah, it does have some, some pretty special Keweenaw history to it. Oh, great. Um, I'd like to yeah, make a comment absolutely. if I could. Go ahead, Deb. Um, on two other occasions, I have run into uh, information on this same story, not near in the depth that you did, but back in 2009, when I put together a coffee table book of the photography of John William Nara, one of the photos that I chose was a photo that John William Nara took of the cars in the wreck of the Bangor. <clears throat> and that had gotten me interested in it so that uh, two years ago, when Victor published my book, Superior Tapestry, I included a chapter on the car in the museum and I wrote that chapter from the point of view of the car. Ooh. Brand new car, all excited to go to a new owner and winds up sitting on a ship frozen. <laughs> for, for That's weeks great. Weeks. So yeah, there are a few other people who know the story and have done it in other ways. And when I read your book, I really appreciated the incredible depth that you went into with the story. I mean, mine are very short quite superficial by comparison. You certainly did a huge amount of work in putting together the complete story. I appreciate that. And at the end of the book, we even go so far as to talk about 
a sister ship, yes. another Nicholson ship that it was it was not good time for Mr. Nicholson. It was two years later, and we talk about it in the book, where one of his um his car haulers, as I call them, in Lake Michigan, uh, was hauling Nashes from Kenosha, headed north up Lake Michigan, and we, we talk about it in the book, and got into a, a terrible storm off of uh, Port Washington, and coming down is a is an ore uh, carrier from Escanaba, and both ships continued at full speed, but were, you know, were, were signaling each other, and they, both of them turned the wrong way and turned into each other. Well, of course, one of the problems with with the ships carrying cars, and that was the problem with the banger, is they ride high in the water. So when this the, the ore carrier hit, and this one was called the Senator, by the way, uh, hit the Senator. I mean, it was within 15, 20 minutes and the senator went to the bottom with its load of Nash's. Unfortunately, it took the captain and five crewmen with it. Uh, the other crewmen were finally rescued by uh, fishing ships in the area. But we talk about it in the, in the book and we found a photo that was taken. It's a very bad photo. It shows the, the bottom of Lake Michigan and it kind of outlines where the car is, where the boat is, and where the cars are. <laughs> and the historians over there in, in uh, Wisconsin, along Lake Michigan, have written a little bit about it. And they call that spot in Lake Michigan the largest Nash Museum in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that actually is part of a chapter, I think it's the chapter I call uh, about the jinx because there, there was a, a reporter from a Detroit newspaper who had gotten pretty tired of covering stories of ships carrying <laughs> carrying autos getting into trouble and he said there must be a jinx on this you know so we use that to kind of move into the story about the senator mm -hmm. okay. well thank you um any final thoughts or comments questions no, I just said, I have thoroughly enjoyed doing the book. You know, it only took a year, but my wife said, you became addicted to that book in a year. <laughs> I was, I mean, I spent as much time as I could and writing books about livelihood. You know, I have to do something else to pay for my addiction, you know. So, and, <laughs> um, it, 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 was, it was enjoyable. I've met some great people doing it. Uh, Mark Rowe, uh, from Calumet, who is maritime historian at uh, you know the historical society, um, tremendous friend. We were up last summer and spent some time with Mark and got a chance to see what he's doing over at the Life uh, Saving Museum. If you if you're not aware of that, that's on the road as you go into into uh, Eagle Harbor and it, and he's done a great job with that. So I've, people like that. People like like Victor. What an operation. Can I call it Operation Victor? What a Please. wonderful association <laughs> that he has got in the Upper Peninsula. I mean, I've had the opportunity to to 
interface with other author groups and I have never seen a group that is so determined to help the author and to publicize what the authors are doing in the Upper Peninsula. It's, Victor, I don't know where you, where you find time to do it all. <laughs> yeah, my I'm not sure either. My <laughs> compliment and praise to you. And boy, I wish you could just continue doing it. When the snow melts, I'll be back up there. I'll be bugging you about something, I guarantee. <laughs> it's no coincidence. It's the ethic of the UP to help your neighbor. I mean, when That's I went to the pitch at US2 at three in the morning, Somebody came down. The next guy down the road hauled, tied a winch to up my bumper, hauled me out, and that was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. What What do we say on the last page? Here? I put my my cheaters on. Uh, it's often said it takes a village, but it took a peninsula to create the amazing story of the city of Bangor. It was the determined people of the Keweenaw Peninsula who gave this unbelievable story a happy ending. This book is dedicated not only to them, but also to those who have continued to keep the legend alive. It is appreciation to family members who have shared the tales told to the historians, the archivists who have acquired and maintained the documents, and most of all, to the remarkable can-do tradition of Kiwanaki people who make this peninsula a safe harbor during troubled times. It is, like you said, Victor, it's that can-do tradition in Upper Michigan. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, that's a nice way to end. Thank you for beating that. You're, you've got Mary all homesick over there in Montana. I am. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Well, thank you, everyone, and um, we'll see. Well, I, let me let me mention that I would be a dirty rascal if I didn't mention this. Oh, okay. In, in Crystal Falls, Winks Woods Gift Shop has the book for sale. Okay. And it's other places throughout the Keweenaw too. I mean, you go, you get up in the peninsula; it's it's everywhere. It's you know, but the the lady Jen at Winks Woods has got the book. I hope she hasn't sold out already. So if you want one, it's right there in Crystal Falls. There we go. Well, it's all for for everything, and um, we won't see each other for a while. So I'm I do wish everybody a very happy Christmas, a Merry Christmas, um, Thanksgiving, New Year's. <laughs> And we'll see you in January. I hope you all make it through everything. Yeah, we'll see you next year for sure. All right. Yeah. Take Thank care. You. Right. Thanks, Evelyn. Thank you for a very nice, informative Thank talk. You, Evelyn. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.